If someone asked you, what must I do to be saved? What would you say? Perhaps, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. (laughs) This is the answer given much later in the book of Acts. But essentially, Jesus is asked the same question here in Luke chapter 10. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that basically synonymous with what must I do to be saved? And it's interesting the way Jesus answered here. Essentially, in affirming the man's own answer, essentially Jesus teaches us here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's in verse 27. Or in other words, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or as is written in Leviticus 20, verse 26, and quoted in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 16, be holy as God is holy. Or as Jesus said elsewhere in Luke 18, you know the commandments? If you want to be saved, If you want to have eternal life, you must have a perfect righteousness. You must be holy. You must keep God's commandments. I should say if you want to earn your salvation, I should say. You must keep God's commandments. Encapsulating and summarizing all of these requirements, being holy, being perfect, keeping God's commandments is you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, if you are perfect, God will accept you. If you are holy as God is holy, without blemish, to the same degree, without exception, God will grant you eternal life. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, then God will accept you and you will have eternal life. Jesus said, do this and you will live. Verse 28, Luke chapter 10. But if you are not perfect, then God will punish you. If you are not holy, God will damn you to hell. If you do not love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, then in and of yourself, God does not approve of you. But rather, you remain under His wrath. God is a righteous God and does not let sin go unpunished. His righteousness demands that He punishes unrighteous sinners. How does this make you feel? I'm not asking you what you think of it. I'm asking you how it makes you feel. Let me read you a quote from Martin Luther. I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand in the sense of the formal or active righteousness by which God is righteous and punishes unrighteous sinners. Although I lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God. Nor was I able to believe that I had pleased Him with my satisfaction. I did not love, in fact I hated, that righteous God who punished sinners. If not with silent blasphemy, then certainly with great murmuring. I was angry with God. Martin Luther's words. This is how many people feel about God's righteousness. You start talking about sin, you start talking about hell. This is exactly how they feel. I did not love, but I hated this righteous God who punishes unrighteous sinners. You want to start talking about love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. People are cool with it. But as soon as you say, if you don't do that, then because God is righteous then He will punish you. And He will damn you. 
then all of a sudden the same feeling that Martin Luther had is the same feeling that a lot of people experience. I did not love, in fact, I hated that righteous God who punished sins. Today in Luke 10, 25 to 37, which I just read for you, we read of one man's response to God's moral law. Jesus clearly says in this passage that if you keep the law perfectly, you will inherit eternal life. Do this and you will live. He summarizes the law, affirming the man's answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We already considered this point sufficiently just a moment ago, so I won't repeat myself at length, but suffice it to say, put this in your mind, perfect obedience equals eternal life. Imperfect obedience equals eternal death. Okay, settle that principle in your mind. Do this and you will live. You have answered correctly, Jesus says. The lawyer's response, after all, it was a lawyer who stood up to put him to the test in verse 25. The lawyer's response to this concept in verse 29 is to justify himself. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In other words, the lawyer wants to prove to his own conscience and to the watching world that he has indeed kept these commandments. Perhaps you've already been doing this this morning. Perhaps instead of feeling angry at God's righteousness, perhaps you've thought, well, yeah, that's good that God is righteous. I mean, it's good that he punishes all those unrighteous people. You know, it's, it's good that I'm not unrighteous. It's good that I'm acceptable. Right? And you've been justifying yourself. As I've been talking about God's expectation of moral acceptability, perhaps you've been trying to convince yourself that you are morally acceptable to God. There are two ways that we do this. The first is to minimize our sin. And the second is to lower God's standard. So, in terms of minimizing our sin, we hear, you shall... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And we say, yeah, I, I basically do that. You know, I, I have a real sincere heart towards God. And, and when I read about loving God and my neighbor, yeah, I pretty much think I do that. And you fail to realize the heart dynamics that are present within you. If you could look more honestly and you could look more thoroughly, you would see just how short you do, in fact, fall of loving God and loving neighbor. I heard just this week of a pastor who uh, had been covering up a scandal for a number of years and the there was a member of the deacons board who asked him as all this came out, do you feel that you're still biblically qualified to pastor this church or any other church? And the man said, yes. Which is just dumbfounding to all involved. But what's happening there is there's this minimization of sin. There's this acknowledgement that yes, God is holy and yes, God has moral standards and so on and so forth. But there's this minimizing of sin such that we are prepared to say, yes, all that's true, but I have met these standards. Yes, all that's true, but I'm really not all that bad. Yes, all of that is true, but it's not, it's not as bad as everybody's saying. This is one of the ways that we try to justify ourselves. The other way that we try to justify ourselves and prove that we are morally acceptable to God is we lower God's standard. And so we say, well, yes, God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And yes, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But he knows we can't do it perfectly. And so I don't think that he really expects us to do it 100%. You know, God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. I mean, after all, he commands us to love. So he is a God of love. And so he knows that we can't, literally love Him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we can't 
literally love our neighbor as ourselves. And so what he expects is, is a very sincere attempt. And so because I have made a very sincere attempt, then I'm acceptable to God, right? So you see, we either try to bring our righteousness up, minimizing our sin, or we try to bring God's standard down so that our righteousness and God's standard can meet somewhere in the middle. This is what we try to do in terms of justifying ourselves. Both of these are wrapped up in the lawyer's question, and who is my neighbor? If he can get Jesus to define neighbor in a favorable way, then he can feel justified before God, before all these people watching and listening to the conversation. His sin will be excused and the standard will be in reach and seen to have been met. But Jesus doesn't respond the way that the lawyer is hoping that he will. Jesus tells a story that upholds the highest possible standard of love for neighbor. The central point of the parable that Jesus tells is this. Loving your neighbor means not asking who is my neighbor, but who am I to be a neighbor to? If you look at the end of the parable and the way that Jesus sums it up in verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In other words, when you hear, love your neighbor as yourself, don't make a list of those who are your neighbors that you have to love and then those who are not your neighbors who you don't have to love. What you should do is you should say, I will go and be a neighbor to everybody who providentially crosses my path. This is the central thrust of what Jesus is going to get at. Allegorical interpretation of parables is misguided, in which everything has a symbolic meaning. In this parable, the allegorist might say, well, what does the oil and wine represent, which he rubbed on the wounds? In this parable, what does the inn represent? What does this Samaritan's animal that he put the injured man on represent? This is the wrong way to approach the story that Jesus tells. It's not an allegory. It's a story told to answer a simple question. Who is my neighbor? Some important factors to consider in the story. One is the condition of the victim. This man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 30. So this man is in very, very bad shape. I've heard some say that the priest and the Levite passed by this man so that they did not become ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to fulfill their ceremonial responsibilities as priests or Levites. But it says here that the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that was apparently a tip, the typical way of talking because Jerusalem was up on a hill and you'd be traveling downwards then from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what we read in verse 31 is that a priest was going down that road. It's the same word used, the same way of describing it. Presumably also going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So I think, I think it's at least insinuated here. It's not a hill I would die on. But I think it's, all, it's insinuated here in that the same language is used about going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and a priest was also going down that the priest was actually leaving Jerusalem, which means that he wasn't on his way to fulfill ceremonial obligations. Rather, he was on his way home from fulfilling ceremonial obligations. So, in other words, he's doubly as guilty because he doesn't even have the religious excuse. This is not a man on his way to church who can't stop to help someone who has fallen in a ditch. It's someone who is on his way home from church to rest and can't stop to help someone who has fallen in the ditch. 
You see how even the first case is bad, but the second case is doubly bad. It's not that you're going to miss church, it's that you're going to miss your afternoon nap if you stop to help this guy. So there's the, the concern perhaps for ceremonial cleanness, maybe, but probably more likely there's just a lack of love, which is the whole point that Jesus is making in this parable, isn't it? Moreover, frankly, if you've ever seen somebody beat and left half dead, maybe if you're a medical student, you don't, it doesn't put you off, but for, but for me, I find wounds gross. I find blood and guts and gore off-putting. And I think many of us do. Moreover, if there's a man on this lonely road who has been beaten and left half dead, we know how evil people work, don't we? They devise schemes to get other people to stop and fall victim to the same sort of thing. You hear those WhatsApp messages, or you read those WhatsApp messages circulating. Be aware, <laughs> right? This is the scheme that people are doing these days. You know, they'll put out cones in the road late at night, and when you stop to figure out what's going on, then they'll fall upon your car. Or, you know, a woman in distress will come from the cane fields looking like she needs help, and when you stop to help her, then other men will come out of the cane fields or whatever. We know, we know these messages that circulate and the stories that you hear and so on and so forth. Look, it's possible that this guy was bait, that he really was stripped and beaten and left half dead, but that the robbers are still lurking nearby, and they know that someone is going to stop to help this guy, and then they're going to fall upon him and beat him and leave him half dead also. Helping this guy might put you at risk. So, perhaps you don't want to get ceremonially unclean. What will people think if they see you touching this guy who is ceremonially unclean and you as a priest who's supposed to be ceremonially clean what will what will people think perhaps you're going to have to sit out of whatever religious ceremonies and rituals for a period of time and you don't want to do that because then no one will see you praying in the corner of the marketplace and you won't get the glory that comes from men right what what if their robbers are nearby lurking and, and helping this guy is going to put you in danger. Or it's just plain gross. Or you don't want to deal with this. Right? All these various reasons. Then there's the ethnicity and the politics of the victim. The Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with one another. As the woman at the well points out to Jesus in John chapter 4. Why are you, first of all, a man talking to me, a woman, because they didn't do that in that day and age, in that particular culture. A man wouldn't just stop to talk to a woman at the well. It was dis, dishonorable and frowned upon. So it was a bit of a dubious look for Jesus to stop and talk to this woman. Second of all, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan, she says when we know that Jews and Samaritans don't have dealings, right? So here is a Jewish man who fell among robbers and his fellow Jew, a priest, passes him by. His fellow Jew, a Levite, passes him by. And then along comes a Samaritan. There is an ethnic issue here. But the ethnic issue was mainly rooted in religion and politics as opposed to racism. We might say, to put it in modern day terms, that these two parties are like the someone high up in the Black Lives Matter organization and somebody wearing a Make America Great Again ball cap. Something like this where there's a, you know, draped in a confederate flag or something, right? There's this obvious incompatibility and tension in terms of where these guys are coming from ideologically, politically, religiously. There's, there's this tension, this difficulty. So someone is coming along and sees somebody that is sort of marked 
by everything they oppose religiously, ideologically, politically. Right? So the guy in the MAGA hat is walking along and sees someone with a Black Lives Matter shirt beaten by the side of the road, or vice versa. Right? Not to make the Trump supporter the hero of the story. <laughs> Perhaps someone in a Black Lives Matter t-shirt is walking along the road and sees somebody there with a Make America Great Again hat, you know, laying there with his Confederate flag beside him. And it's like, boy, right? What do I do? This is, this is, the point is not who's who, right? But the point is just to recognize that this was the sort of tension, in fact, probably even more so than that fault line. But just to put it in modern terms, it was like something like this discomfort of ideology and politics that would be, make it really difficult to love this person and care for this person. But this is exactly what happens. The Samaritan loads this guy onto his animal, brings him to the inn, and takes care of him. And the next day, he takes out two denarii, and a denarii was about a day's wages for a laborer. And that's kind of a down payment, because he says to the innkeeper in verse 35, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this two denarii is not assumed to be the total cost. This two denarii is assumed to be a down payment indicating that the Samaritan is operating in good faith, leaving this guy at the inn, and will in fact make good on the payment on his way back. So this Samaritan loves this guy who is ceremonially unclean, Gross, scary, whose ethnicity and politics make it perhaps especially difficult for him to love this man. And he loves him at cost to himself, significant cost. Even two days' wages is significant. But recognizing that's only a down payment, and we might be talking about a week or two's worth of wages, this is a significant thing that he does for this guy. Notice that we, what we see here is not homogenous care of one person for someone similar to him, someone known to him. It's not care for someone in a situation where it's safe to care for someone. It's not care for someone in a situation which is cheap or inexpensive to care for someone. It's not care for someone in a situation which is pleasant to care for someone. It's not care for someone in a way that is going to get you glory for caring for someone. It is, in fact, in spite of all of these opposing obstacles and what it's going to cost and the danger that it's going to make you liable to and the invisibility of the action and the cost to yourself and so on and so forth that this man loves somebody who, I don't know if this is the right way to use the word, but who is heterogeneous to him, right? Not homogenous to him, but heterogeneous to him, all right? This is what is going on here. And Jesus says, don't ask who is my neighbor, but who am I to be a neighbor to? Which of these men proved to be a neighbor to this guy? Well, the one who showed him mercy. Look, go and do likewise. So go love the people that is costly to love. Go love the people that is dangerous to love. Go love the people that is gross to love. Go love the people that is unpleasant to love. Go love the people that is invisible to love. And so on and so forth. Go love the people who are different from you, who are off putting, and so on and so forth. Look, if the law of God was, John, love the people, the three people in your life that you love more than any other humans in the world. Male, Max, and Wade. Just love them perfectly. That's it. Do that and you will live. Listen, I would still be on my way to hell. You understand that? Because I'm, I don't love perfectly. 
I don't love my wife as I ought to. I don't love my sons as I ought to. And those are literally the people in this world that I am most motivated to love. The people that are the most natural for me to love. I still don't love them the way that I ought to love them. What Jesus teaches is you need to not only love those people, you need to also love the people that are outside of that circle. And say, okay, well, who then? The church? Okay. My family in the church? Well, love even the people that are outside of that circle. What, you mean unbelievers? Yes. Well, what about people of other religions? Yes, them too. Right? What about liberals? Yes, them too. What about conservatives? Them too. Right? You realize as this expands, what about the people that are dangerous to love? What about the people that are costly to love? Jesus is telling us in this parable, yes, love all of those people. Do this and you will live. You see what's happening here? The law of loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself is an impossible standard for fallen men. The reason that I don't love Mel and my boys the way that I ought to is not because there's anything wrong with them. The reason is that there's something wrong with me. That's why. It's not like, well, I would love them perfectly if. It's like, no, you, you, you don't love them perfectly because of the sin in you and the problems in you. So when we fail to love our families and when we fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and when we fail to leave to love the unbelieving world and when we fail to love people of other religions and when we fail to love people on the other side of the political aisle what we do is we try to justify ourselves like this guy Desiring to justify himself and say, well, do I really have to love those guys anyway? After all, who is my neighbor? Right? When the reality is, the reason you don't love those people properly is not because there's something wrong with them. It's because there's something wrong with you. That's why you can't love your neighbor as yourself. That's why you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why we recognize the impossibility of actually doing this and living. Right? Jesus clearly, plainly teaches that it is hypothetically possible, that there is this connection between doing this and living. But the problem is, even if from today onward you just heard this message and you were like, wow, from now on I'm going to love my neighbor as myself and love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And by some stroke of just incredible, unprecedented, anomalous, I don't know what I don't want to say fortune, but that's not the right word. Somehow you just managed to stop sinning today. Listen, you sinned already this morning. You sinned yesterday. You sinned last week. So even if somehow you could just stop sinning right now and be like, all right, I'll do this and live. Then you would get to the courtroom of God and you would say, well, I've done it and lived. And God would say, well, only since September 17th, 2023. But before that, you've got things that indict you and render you culpable and guilty. So it's not do this and live. It's you haven't done this, so die. You see, there is this impossibility because we have already sinned, because in fact we come corrupt from our mother's wombs. There is this impossibility, though God would never damn an innocent person. There is this impossibility in real life for corrupt people who have done corrupt things and are not yet perfected to actually do this and live. So though we ought to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we do not love God with our, all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Though we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves, we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. 
But Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The changeover from Old Testament to New is not God is strict in the Old Testament and then lightens up with the advent of Jesus. That's not how the Bible reads. The Bible reads that God created as good, we messed up. God reiterates His holy standards, makes clear and emphasizes His holiness in the Old Testament such that we are left despairing. And then Jesus shows up and we have good news of great joy that His name shall be called Jesus for He shall save His people from their sins. Jesus comes to fulfill the law on our behalf. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As I unpack to you that we ought to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves, if you're being honest with yourself, you should be feeling guilty. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, but not justification from sin. By works of the law, no one will be justified for, as we go on in verse 23 of Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 4-7, which I often quote, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. With respect to what must I do to inherit eternal life then? There's no discrepancy between Romans, or pardon me, between Luke chapter 10 and Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and live. Or Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no discrepancy. Because hypothetically, if you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and your neighbor as yourself perfectly without fail ever, there would be no reason for God to punish you. There would be nothing to be punished for. You would do this and live. But because we have not, nor never could, since we come corrupt from our mother's womb, we need a righteousness of another. And Jesus has come to keep the law on our behalf. And so the end of the matter is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do this and live, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As R.C. Sproul put it in that provocative way at some uh, conference one time, he said, he said, we are saved by works. And of course, everyone, <gasps> he said, we're saved by Jesus' works. Right? But this is the mechanism of the gospel, is that there is this need for perfect law-keeping. There is this need, if God is righteous, for Him to punish the unrighteous. And so Jesus has come to fulfill the law for us and to bear in Himself the punishment we deserve so that we can be saved by works, the works of Jesus, His law-keeping, His obedience to death, even death on the cross. And this is because Jesus is teaching us in Luke 10 of this principle of God's righteousness, that righteousness leads to life and unrighteousness leads to death. Now, one application of this passage, obviously then, is Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't justify yourself, but let this parable leave you naked and exposed before the eyes of a holy God who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And realize that you are destitute of righteousness, which is sufficient to save you. Don't be like this lawyer who desired to justify himself, but acknowledge, wow, if this is what I need to do to love like this, to be saved, 
then I need a righteousness from outside myself. And let this parable of the Good Samaritan lead you to Jesus who loves like we have failed to love on our behalf. And let this lead you to Jesus who has borne the punishment that we deserve for failing to love as we have loved. This is one clear and central and fundamental application of this section of teaching. But we would be amiss if we fail to apply this passage the way Jesus applies it as soon as he's done. He tells this story and then he says to the man, you go and do likewise. So if I just say, well, never mind loving God and neighbor because you can't do it anyway. Jesus has loved God and neighbor perfectly for you. I would be failing to tell you to do what Jesus told this man to do. Go and do likewise. Listen, we need to learn to love our neighbor. Like this man in the parable loved the man who had fallen among robbers. We have to figure out how to love those who are unlike us, who are gross, who are scary, who are on the other side of the political aisle, who share our religion and who don't. We need to figure out how to love these people. Thank God we have divine help in this endeavor. In Romans 8, which I read at Leslie's funeral this past Friday, it tells us that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. We are being made like Jesus, who saw a race of men who had fallen among robbers, as it were, who were, I'm sure, all right, I'm sure, gross to come to in some way. Listen, if you were the eternal Son of God in absolute glory and bliss with the Father and the Spirit and in the presence of innumerable angels, and you contemplated coming to this earth to deal with us, I'm sure there would be something off-putting about that, no? And when you realize that it would be dangerous, and in fact it would cost you your life, that you would be nailed to a cross, that it would be dangerous to you, that it would loving these people would come at great cost to yourself. When you contemplated taking on flesh and dwelling among us, and realize that we were not so much like you. That Jesus is very different than us, very other than us. He didn't come to save us because we're like him with respect to our politics and our religion and our ways of speaking and acting. He came to us, in fact, for the very reason the problem was that we were unlike him. And so Jesus came for people that were very different from Him, very other, very gross. It was a dangerous mission. It was a costly mission. But look at what Jesus has done for us. You think that this Samaritan in the story is good? Think of Jesus. What Jesus has been to us is the good Samaritan par excellence. And we are being changed to be like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is working on us to make us love like Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 35 says this, By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. There is going to be this love that we have one for another in the church which the Spirit will work in our lives. Which is going to be distinctively Christian. It is going to be a mark of belonging to Christ. There is going to be a love found in the church which is going to be so distinct that it will... If you have that love, all men will know that, that person has to belong to Jesus. Because that love is a marker of being Jesus' disciple. 
let me try to unpack that a little bit. In July, I was in Toronto, as you know, and the Friday night that I was there, I went to a concert by a guy named Eric Church, who is not a Christian, nor is his music, Christian music or anything. It's his secular concert, country music. And he has this song called Through My Ray-Bans. And, and he often wears his sunglasses while he performs, so Through My Ray-Bans. He says this in that song. He says, I know a place where kings and paupers drink with the dreamers and the cheaters and the lawyers. And the chorus says, everybody's got their arms around everybody else's shoulders. Guarding against the world outside like an army of Friday night soldiers. The battle wages tomorrow, but tonight we've got a drink in our hand. Wish you could stay the way I see you through my Ray-Bans. Alright, let me, let me try to unpack what I think is a profound concept. You'll be the judge of that. What Eric Church sees through his Ray-Bans, night after night as he tours, is a heterogeneous community of very different people. The kings and the paupers, the dreamers and the cheaters and the lawyers. And he sees them brought together, this heterogeneous community, around something that they love. In his case, the music, the drinks, the vibe of the concert, everybody's come together, everybody's having a good time. And there's almost this table fellowship, right? Tonight we've got a drink in our hand, right? Here we are fellowshipping with one another in a sense, right? But what does he say? He says, I wish you could stay the way I see you through my Ray-Bans. In other words, there's this implicit acknowledgement that for maybe a couple of hours, this heterogeneous community comes together of all these different people, all these different walks of life, and here they are, and everybody feels like they are together, and that they are one, and there's this feeling of, dare I say, love, one for another. But there is this acknowledgement that this is fleeting. Wish you could stay the way I see you through my Ray-Bans. In the movie Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius says to Maximus, there once was a dream that was wrong, but you could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. What I think, what I think Eric Church is tapping into in that song through my Ray-Bans is that there is a whisper of the heterogeneous community that we were made for, that we long for. People coming together from all walks of life and setting aside various differences and distinctives and gathering around some kind of common thing. But it's just a whisper. So fragile. And the concert ends and everybody dissipates. And there was that moment of feeling like there was something that you could almost grab, but you couldn't quite get there. Anything more than a whisper and it would vanish. It was so fragile. Carl Truman writes in an article entitled The Death of Church and Power. The nature of community is changing. The old village has gone. One can lament the passing of parish churches and village pubs, but the type of community that birthed them has gone forever. But the human need for community, rich, real, personal community, will exist as long as our individual identities are tied up with looking into the faces of those 
who are bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. In other words, that need will exist as long as we are human beings made in God's image. And the answer is hospitality. Churches and Christians need to think about what this looks like in our modern world as much as we need to think about other aspects of the faith. And the good news is that the very things Christians decry in our current culture, from its superficiality to its instability to its hopelessness, make this a time of unparalleled opportunity. Let me say it like this. What people experience at an Eric Church concert or whatever other band they like, and everybody is just in that moment and feels like they're all together, it's, a, it's an inferior experience to what God has ultimately designed us for. I'm not, I, I, I carefully say not counterfeit, because there is something real about coming together on lesser things. But coming together on lesser things is like a whisper. So fragile. It's here today, gone tomorrow. There is a superficiality about it. There is an instability to it. Here today, gone tomorrow. But what if in Christ we learned to really, truly, deeply, lastingly love one another in a way that outlasts Friday night turning into Saturday morning? In a way that is meaningfully goes beyond just sharing a couple hours of music that we all like together. What if we learn to really, truly love one another as the Good Samaritan loved the Jew in the parable that Jesus tells us today? What if we looked at one another and the world outside the church and we looked at people who were very different from us? What if we looked at people who we found gross? What if we looked at people that we found scary? What if we looked at people who were different from us politically? Different from us religiously? What if we looked at people and considered loving them, but we thought to ourselves it would be costly to do so? But what if the Holy Spirit was so making us like Jesus that we decided to love anyway when we contemplated these, these things? What if we weren't Eric Church's army of Friday night soldiers? But what if we could become an army of Sunday morning soldiers, as it were, guarding against the world outside, everybody's arms around everybody else's shoulders? What if we really learned to love in the school of Christ? And to begin loving in such a way that, as Rosaria Butterfield said, strangers become neighbors, and neighbors become family of God. What stops you from reaching out to someone in love? What stops you from reaching out to someone with hospitality? As Truman was kind of pointing in that direction in the excerpt that I read you. This community that we all long for. To open your home, to open your heart to someone. What stops you? Isn't it often cost? Or danger? Or that it's undesirable to you? Just plain old, you just don't want to? Right? Or this, these people are so different from us, what would we even talk about? What stops you from reaching out in love the way that this Samaritan reached out to the Jew in this passage? The invitation of Christ certainly is to believe and be justified. It certainly is to trust in the love of Jesus 
for God and neighbor as a sufficient righteousness. It certainly is to trust in the cross work of Jesus as sufficient propitiation for our failure to love God and neighbor. But the invitation of Jesus is more than just to be saved. The invitation to Jesus is to be made like Him. Where we could be a, a, a community of love. Where love, belonging, togetherness is not just a whisper. Where it's not just fragile. Where it's not something that is going to vanish. Where it's not something that's here today, gone tomorrow. But because of our commitment to loving for Christ's sake, because of the work of His Spirit in us, we are prepared to lastingly and consistently love one another within the church and even turn that love to radiate outward so that we're not just a little holy huddle loving only one another, but loving even a lost world outside the church. The invitation of Christ is not just to be saved from the penalty of our sin, but to be saved from the power of our sin such that we can live differently. It's to be saved from the fleeting, somewhat superficial, inferior community and inferior love that anything else can offer us. And it's to embrace a deeper, more profound, real community, love, belonging, togetherness, as Christ builds us as holy stones into a holy dwelling. Sorry, as living stones into a holy dwelling. This is the invitation of Christ to have your sins forgiven, yes, for His sake, but also to be called into a new way of living in which we learn to really truly and profoundly love our neighbors. We're going to sing uh, two songs before we conclude the service. First, in preparation for communion, Come Ye Sinners, which is that first point of application to come to Jesus and be saved. And then after communion, we're going to sing, O Great God, which is that second point of application, that He would be working in us and upon us to fashion us into what He would have us to be.